Another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went Hi you folks, this is Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. And as always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, dictated is almost always the case. Once again, from my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas, as I uh, merge on to the I-20, off of the Cooper Street uh, entrance ramp and around an ass clown who doesn't seem to think I deserve it to be on the highway too. Uh, so if this is your first show, you're going to hear a lot of background noise, and that's because I'm in a car. Uh, this is episode 303. It's 303 times we've gotten together and done this show. Today is Friday, October 23rd, 2009. And today's show is going to be about systems of dependence and their interdependence. I, I wanted to answer a question out there for everybody. There's a question I get all the time. I get this question, oh my God, ten times a week. It comes painted in various forms, but it's always the same question. I have this friend, or I have this family member, and we have told them what we do, and they think we're crazy because they want to really know what really that bad could happen. And I think what this is generally about is the fact that a lot of us prepare for more than three days without power, more than a storm here or a storm there, more than the electricity going out and, you know, that type of thing. We, we prepare to maybe have to be on our own for 30 or 60 days or more. Some of us are crazy enough that, my God, we're prepared to go a year without any support. And, oh, my God, that must be absolutely, totally insane to be that way. So when those people say what can go wrong, they're not pacified by an answer like, well, there was a storm last year and it wiped out the neighborhood right over there. And they're also legitimately thinking, well, all this food you have stored in your house, if your house gets destroyed, it doesn't really help you. Right? <laughs> so, you know, but then if you take that same person that's that skeptical and say, well, I have another place and there's more food there. And if I have to leave, I can fall back to it. And we call that a bug. I mean, we've lost them, right? So let's answer the core question today. That's what this is going to be about, what can go wrong. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at all the systems that people take advantage of and rely on every day that they don't even think about and how they interact with each other. But before we kind of jump off into that, let's knock out some housekeeping real quick. Number one, make sure you're supporting our sponsors, folks. Um, Again, any sponsor on this site is a personal endorsement, personal recommendation from me. Uh, Hopefully that carries some weight. They also go through our advertising council on the forum, which are all the moderators. And if two of the moderators or more say, i got a problem here, um, we don't let them in. We turn them away, say, sorry, can't take your money, that type of thing. Uh, so you know they're solid. You know they're good. Uh, first sponsor of the day today is Directive21.com. Again, Directive21.com, reseller of Berkey Light water filters. Water is the most important substance on the planet as far as keeping yourself alive, and you will never store as much as you really need. It's too heavy, it's too bulky, and it's too hard to transport. Therefore, you must have a method of purification. Um, Next sponsor of the day, Western Botanicals. Western Botanicals is a fine producer of some of the best uh, natural supplements I've ever tried. Uh, these guys are great. I was really hoping that we would find somebody to fill this niche as a sponsor uh, because I think there's a lot of people out there in our audience with interest in herbal medicine uh, and herbal preventatives. And these guys really have it down, and they have everything and anything you could want in that world. And uh, they're going to be bringing out a discount code soon for listeners and a bigger discount code for uh, member support brigade people. So that will be announced on Monday next week for them. Um, next thing I wanted to do real quick was throw out a uh, invitation once again to all to join the member support brigade. The uh, member support brigade is what you could support the show and uh, we give back to you when you do that with exclusive content and benefits that are available only to members. Uh, these include things like a lifetime membership to Save Castles Discount Club, which is a $29 value, a series of publications by James Talmadge Stevens, um, some videos by me that are available nowhere else but there. So consider joining the Member Support Brigade if you think this show's worth $0.20 an episode, because that's what your contribution of about $50 a year comes out to. 
I, before I go into the main topic today, I want to remind you of a couple other things to talk about a couple things that have come up recently. Uh, last chance to get a discount from Ron Hood on his uh, on his website for any of his DVDs. He was on the show two weeks ago. He gave us two weeks with discount code Jack Spierko, uh where you can get his DVDs at a 10% discount. Um, Ron will be providing a new discount code for member support brigade members that will be permanent. So member support brigade members are always going to have a discount at Ron Hood's DVD store. And I'll see if I can squeeze an extra point or two out of them for you. Ron doesn't like being squeezed, but who does? Um, Then there's one other thing I want to talk about. A discussion that came out of the show that I did earlier this week on self-reliance versus self-sufficiency. And it kind of led in today's show, so we're really into the topic at this point. Um... We were having this discussion over at Dirt Times New Forum about self-reliance and self-sufficiency, and along with Dark Winter's uh, question, it was what drove that episode earlier this week. After I did the episode, I went back over and I started kind of getting the discussion going again and say, hey, I did a show today on this, you know, maybe you can listen to it. Uh, Dude McLean had some pretty interesting thoughts, and I said, dude, tell me if I got this right. And uh, I guess he's off fishing or something because he hasn't responded yet. Um, But... One of the things that finally came out of it for me as we were talking about it and having interaction with other people, this is why you need to be in forums because it helps evolve thought, was I was reminded of a guy named Buckminster Fuller. Now, who was Buckminster Fuller? He was kind of an eccentric, uh, crazy inventor. And he's a guy that put the patent on the structure known as the geodesic dome. All right, so all these geodesic domes, they fall under the Buckminster Fuller patent for the geodesic dome. So a pretty smart guy to come up with that concept and, and be able to patent it. And in the patent, and in all of his patents, he had a tendency to say things that really had nothing to do with the patent. They were just like his public speaking point. And he said something about wealth in that patent, and it was that wealth can be defined as the number of days you can survive forward if your income goes away and you can't work anymore. So it didn't matter how big a car you drove or how nice a house you lived in or or anything like that. All that mattered was how long you could survive if your job was gone and your wife's job was gone and you had to just make it with the assets that you had. And if you're homeless on the street in 90 days, then your wealth wasn't expressed in dollars but in days. It was 90 days of wealth. And I said, extrapolating that, one of my fears for my country is that while we look quite wealthy, if we use Mr. Fuller's definition of that, and we don't just look at money, we actually look at our dependence upon everything around us to continue to function, money or not. That while having lots of money and lots of stuff, that America is one of the poorest countries in the world. And along with a lot of Europe... If we're cut off from our systems of support, that poverty will be immediately obvious to the most casual observer. And we might find that what we define as wealth is actually worthless. So that another way of looking at self-reliance versus self-sufficiency is a self-reliant man is wealthy. He can make it through hard times easily. A self-sufficient man, for all intents and purposes, is a billionaire. He won't even know the hard times came because he has everything that he needs to make it in the way that he chooses. And that's what led me to do again today a show about systems of dependence and interdependence. And with that, answer the question to people, well, what the hell could go wrong? And I think the problem is that we have removed an S from a word that needs an S at the end of it, not just the beginning of it. And that is system. You hear people all the time about, you know, the system. The system this, the system that. I don't want to be dependent on the system. The system requires that. If you want to make it in the system, you have to. Right? It could go on. I could sit here for an hour just coming up with places where the system gets put in. But it's not the system. And this is the false sense of security. That there's one system. There's one thing. As long as we take care of it, it'll take care of us. You know, I don't know if you guys like South Park at all, but I like the 
crazy takes they have on modern civilization. And one, they had one where the economy was crashing, and basically they came up with the idea that they needed to worship, not the kids, but the adults did, uh, they needed to worship the economy, that the economy became angry with them because they were abusive. So the economy dealt out, you know, anger against them and wrath. And they were running around like, you know, uh, Pharisees and Sadducees in the biblical times trying to appease the economy by not spending money, and that meant the economy couldn't come back. Well, I think that is 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 stupid as that view is, it, it says something about the, 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 the take that modern society has when we call anything the system without a second thought. Because there's actually multitudes of systems, and within each system, there's multiple systems. Uh, let me go through a few of them, and if you, unless, you, unless you heard the show I did on this topic over a year ago, then maybe it'll start to make sense. Um, let's start out with the big system that everybody's generally sort of referring to when they say the system, and that's the financial system. Okay, So the financial system is all the money floating around in the United States or in the world, if you really want to look at it that big, or down to you, the person, the individual, your personal financial system. Let's start with your personal financial system because it's the easiest one to understand. Odds are, unless you're wealthy or affluent, you have a job. That job provides you a given level of income, and you take that income and you use it to pay for all the things that you use to make it through your daily life. You have an inflow and an outflow. Hopefully the outflow is smaller than the inflow. For most Americans, it is not, leading us to another system called the debt system. We'll get there in a second. Debt and financial are not the same. They're highly related, but they're not the same, especially for you as an individual. So you are dependent on that financial system. And for most Americans, the day that we don't even cut that financial inflow off, we just squeeze it down. We cut it in half. They're done. It's only a matter of time before they are losing their home, moving in with a relative, getting a small apartment, somehow downscaling their life, because they're so laden with that second system of debt, they can't survive without it. In fact, many people, even if you gave them a house and said you own it, you don't have to pay for it, they would still be in deep trouble if you cut off their income, because they have things like electric bills to pay, and they got to eat. There's an old saying, if you didn't have to eat, everybody would be rich. Which is probably not true. People that made that up don't understand economics, but I get their point. That a large portion of your income is consumed by your need to consume food. You expend energy in the form of work. A symbol for energy in the form of currency is given to you. We call that money. You exchange that symbol of your energy for food so you can consume food, absorb its energy, and do more work. Do you feel like a gerbil yet? That's our financial system. That's how it works at the personal level. Now, the problem is that there's 300 million gerbils throughout the United States running in their wheels, and most of them have been lulled into a false sense of security, especially the 90% who are still working. Uh, and didn't lose their job in this, that as long as they keep running really fast on that wheel, everything's going to be okay. What they don't understand is that their wheel is part of a giant machine that is, you know, let's move it up one layer to a state-level economy. A lot of people in California still doing just fine. Same with New York and same with New Jersey. But all three of those states are closer to bankruptcy than just about any other entity in the world. California is on a precipice from which there is no return into financial oblivion unless the federal government pumps more money in to California. New Jersey's closer. You don't hear as much about it, but New Jersey might as well be cut off and, and float down the Hudson out to the river, uh, out to the ocean right now. That's how bad the economy in New Jersey is. New Jersey needs a financial atomic bomb to just blow it up and start over. It's, it's, it's done. New York, New York has some things going for it because it's a big state and not all of it is run by idiots, but New York City is pretty much sucking the whole state off into the, uh, into the Atlantic Ocean. New York could probably be good to, uh, to create a new state called West New York and secede from the existing state. It's probably the only way that the rest of the state can save itself from the, the idiocy of eastern New York, east, and I should say southeastern New York. 
And that's reality, and that's what's there. And if that financial system implodes, what happens is all the government people that work in that state end up in trouble, and they stop spending money, which dwindles the entire state economy, and it sucks it down. And when you lose a state like New Jersey or New York or California to financial oblivion, it starts a spiral that sucks in the rest of the country sooner or later because of the interdependence that we've created. And that's just the financial system. That's all. That's not even. We're not even into the debt system yet. Other than debt's causing a problem in the financial system. Let's look at the debt system, and let's look at how dependent you are on debt, even if you live debt free. First of all, if you have cash in your pocket, take it out and look at it. It's not money. It's not currency. It is a certificate for debt. That is a certificate for debt that our nation as a whole, you, me, our government, and everybody here owes back to the federal government plus interest. You buy things. You spend. Money, money that is actually debt. Somebody else holds the other side of that debt. Odds are it's Chinese or the British. And it's all actually owed back through the Federal Reserve that makes their, you know, they make their $2 on every hand of poker, basically. So the more debt, the better for them and the worse for us. And the worse for the people holding the debt. The Chinese are scared shitless right now. They will default on the debt. Never happened before, but right now they're looking at it and going, where are you guys going to get the money? What do you mean you want more? So we have that debt system. Let's come down a little bit more granular. What about the debt system that keeps money flowing throughout our country? Do you realize that most companies in America today couldn't make payroll without a line of credit? They pay their their people ahead of the realization of their production. What that means is you work your ass off all week and you think you've done good, and you have, but the output you've created may not be sold in the marketplace for four weeks or a month, you know, five weeks or two months or six months, depending on the industry you're in, or two weeks. Doesn't matter. As long as it's longer than the payroll cycle, you've expended the effort. Now you expect to be paid, rightly so. Your employer hasn't capitalized on your output yet, so he has what's called a revolving line of credit. That revolving line of credit allows him to pay you ahead of the realization of your production. That is the majority of mid to large businesses and many small businesses in America, how they operate. Now, if you're at a tire shop and it's cash on a barrel, and that's different. And you're probably not running a line of credit. And your employer's probably not running a line of credit. But the guy that comes in and buys a tire from you, he probably works for a company that's running a line of credit that way. So the entire nation is dependent both on a financial system at a micro level individually and a macro level nationally and globally with a state level in between. And that system's highly dependent upon a debt system that most people don't even see, understand, or recognize. Another example of dependence on a debt system is the real estate market. If you're going to buy a new house tomorrow, you just decided you needed to, you going to go out and pay cash for it? You might. People listen to the show, that's what they would do. Uh, they've saved their pennies, they're ready for it, they have their house, they'd sell their house, they get money, they go buy another house. Or they'd, uh, they just have the cash, they just go buy a house. 99% of people will never pay cash for a house. In fact, a lot of people that have the money to pay cash for a house are going to be advised by an advisor, don't do that, it's foolish. Use the bank's money at a low interest rate. Invest your $150,000 in something that pays higher, and you come out ahead. Right? That's what they'll be told. But one way or another, do you know the biggest thing that crashed the real estate market? It wasn't that houses became worth less money overnight. Really. In some places they did because they were overvalued. You idiots in California. You idiots in Florida. You idiots on the East Coast in a lot of areas. You idiots that paid way too much for houses and kept chasing the market up. Yes, but throughout most of the country, that's not what happened. What happened was the money to buy houses, the available mortgages, was cut back. There were less buyers. As soon as there's less buyers in the market, prices drop. So dependence on the debt system, the guy that did the right thing, paid for his house every every month like he was supposed to, been there 10 years, just wants to move, wants to go to a different place, wants to upgrade, wants to downgrade, whatever. 
His house, he may have a really hard time selling, especially in a lot of parts of the country, even though he did the right thing for 10 years. Not because he did anything wrong, but because there's no buyer out there that can get the debt necessary to purchase it than financial working. And we've only cracked the surface, folks. Let's go into some other things. Let's look at the agriculture system for a minute. <clears throat> Let's look at it locally, wherever you are. We'll call that the state level. Let's look at it nationally and let's look at it globally. And globally as it relates to providing the United States with food. Let's start out with, you know, I hate to beat up on California, but you guys deserve it. I don't mean you individuals. i got great friends out there. But the government of that place it needs to be thrown out. I, I, I think it's to the point where maybe you people in California need to remove these people physically from their chairs, recall the whole damn government, and get every single one of them out of there. Hell, that'd be a good idea with our national government, wouldn't it? Can we recall the entire Senate, Congress, and the President all in one giant recall election and get rid of all of them with no right for any of them? That would be cool. I don't think we can, but that's what you guys need to do in California. I think there's a way you could actually pull that off out there. But your idiots in California um, look up into the middle of the state at this place called the San Joaquin Valley, which is uh, the place that feeds America, uh, by and large, with vegetables and fruits. It's some of the most fertile land it was, some of the most fertile land in the world. The only thing that was missing was water. So they built this series of canals, and they built this dam, and then they turned this valve, and all of a sudden the whole San Joaquin Valley had inexpensive water, and the farmers there built these farms from the 50s all the way up to last year, and food flowed from California. Keeping us a net importer of food, or net exporter of food all the way up until 2008. And this isn't what caused the, the net exporter thing. We won't even go there. It's too deep a topic. But by and large, this country's been able to feed itself because of the breadbasket in the center and the San Joaquin Valley in California. That's how much production of fruit and vegetables comes out of there. And they have this great climate, and they grow almost year-round, and they have all this great water now. Well, some environmentalists freaked out and sued and got the water turned off to protect a thing called the Delta Smelt. Which means the water's there. There's no reason for the crisis. The farms that are second, third generation farms and orchards are now wilted to the ground. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people without work and losing property. And the rest of the nation is going to see really spiking food prices very, very soon for this. In fact, if you go look at the produce section and compare produce prices to last year, you can already see it's happened. It's a man-caused stupid disaster. I, I wish your governor out there would just sign an executive order overriding the state. And then turn the valve, and if they arrest them, they arrest them and say, this is what I'm doing to protect my state. Send the National Guard down there to keep the damn thing from being turned back. Throw a showdown over it. Be a leader. But no, let your people suffer, and let the rest of the nation suffer because of it. That's the agriculture system. And that's an example of something that's really happening right now. Now, let me point something out for you. The words I used earlier, net importer, net exporter. If you're a net exporter of something, that means that if you add up all your imports of something and all your exports of something, you export more than you import. What that means is if one day you had to, if you just turned a switch and said, no longer shall we export any food because no more food is available for importation, you could feed yourself if it was food you were talking about. When we talk about it with oil, we say we're a net, ex a net importer of oil. That means if the Arabs and the Mexicans and the Russians stop selling us oil, we're screwed. We can't run our economy. We can't produce enough oil in America right now under current conditions to, to provide ourselves with enough energy. It's not possible. Now, people say there's vast untapped reserves. Yeah, it's fine, fine. If we started drilling for it tomorrow, folks, production's 10 years out. We can't do it. We're stuck. Well, we're that way with food, too. We're a net importer of food now. So what if one of these countries that we import a lot of food from, someone like Argentina, big country, rapidly growing, decided for some reason they didn't like us anymore. Now we're good friends with Argentina, don't get me wrong, but anything can happen in this world. And they just said, no more food for you, like the soup Nazi. And they became the food Nazis. No more food for you. 
And there's so many countries that we import so much food from. What if there wasn't even malice? What if Argentina had really bad weather for three or four years? Or some other, one of their own courts does something stupid over the Argentinian smelt or something like that. And they have a, ba- a vast cutback in the production of their food. Do you think they're going to feed their people first or our people first? Do you think everybody's as stupid as us is what I'm asking you. And what you start to realize is throughout the entire world, we have agriculture stretched to the limit now. We do not produce enough food to feed the world anymore. We barely scrape by. Six of the last nine years, global grain production failed to meet demand. That means six of the last nine years, people in the world went hungry, not because economically they couldn't afford to buy the food, but because simply the food was not there. Just not there. We just happen to be the wealthy nation, so we don't have to suffer first, we'll suffer last. But when we suffer, we really suffer. Because that's when the snowball effect's there. Let's look at a different system. Let's look at a transportation system. I'm going to tie how all four systems we've talked to up till now are interdependent upon each other. Transportation system is a lot like the economic system. It exists on various levels. You really have a personal transportation system. I'm using my personal transportation system right now. My personal mobile studio, my Jetta. And I'm cruising along getting my 45 miles to the gallon out of my little efficient diesel motor. And I'm on my way to my office. My car has to work. I have to have fuel for it. The roads have to be in good repair. My access to the roads has to be available. If there's, you know, a civil breakdown, any one of these highways that connect my home to where I go could be completely tied up. Um, There's five lanes on this highway. It's a big highway. Five cars could shut the whole highway down. That's all it would take in an act of civil disobedience. If If you had a thousand united people, you could completely shut down the transportation system in any major United States city today with cars parked on the road, engine hood popped, yank the wires out, and walk away. That's all it would take to shut down any major city in America today. It's a thousand people with cars. They don't even have to be nice cars. In fact, the shittier the better. That's reality. That's all it takes to shut down a city-level transportation system. But let's look at some other things. Around me right now are all these great big things called semi-trucks. And these semi-trucks also burn this diesel fuel that I've been watching slowly go back up in price. All the commodity specialists are telling us oil is still way down. The next time it runs, it's going to run higher than it ever ran before. That $140 is going to start to look good. And then our truckers are going to be spending 7 to 8 bucks a gallon for diesel fuel. If you don't think it can happen, look what a gallon of diesel fuel cost in 1970. And you'll realize it's less of a climb from here to 7 bucks than the price in 1970 to where it was last summer. What happens when that happens? And a trucker says, you know what? At this cost of fuel, I can't afford to run anymore. The trucking companies, well, they're not even, the trucker's not even paying for the fuel, says, we can't afford to transport anymore at our current rates. And they jack them up, and eventually the person selling the goods can't sell the goods. Sooner or later, the truckers park the rigs. It's happened before. And this time it might be a much bigger parking of rigs. And if I was a trucker, I'd make sure that I was trucking food. And when it was the day to park, I'd probably take the truck full of food to my house. Just saying. Makes sense. So we shut down that transportation system. What does that do to the agricultural system? The food sits in rots because it can't get to the store. How long does it take for the shelves to dry up? What does it do to the financial system? What happens when all the grocery stores go out of food? Do you think people are really focused on doing whatever other job they're doing or trying to feed themselves? When the financial system stalls to falter, what happens to the debt? Well, the people holding the debt start to call it in. Do you know that most people living in a house where technically, by contract, the bank could call their debt at any time? The day you the day you sign your mortgage, technically, on most mortgages, a bank could show up and say, uh, we'd like $150,000, please. We're calling the mortgage in early. And you have to secure funding to cover it. Now, they don't do it because it's suicide. But... The thing is, the bank sells the mortgage to somebody else who sells the mortgage to somebody else who packages it, and we have derivatives, and we have contracts. And in that marketplace, people start calling the debts due. 
that's what happened. That's what drove the real estate market down. Well, add to that a trucker strike. Add to that a disruption in the agricultural or distribution system. Put a few of these things together. Do you see how they're so related to each other? What about the technology grid? What would one good, solid EMP attack or a natural EMP occurrence like a solar flare do to the technology grid when it blows up the electrical grid? So we've got two different systems there. We've got an electrical distribution system. You can produce all the electricity you want, folks. You can have plenty of fuel oil and wind and natural gas and coal, and you can be pumping out energy. If you don't have the electrical distribution system functioning properly, which is the big threat if we have a major EMP, that it doesn't work. Well, how much technology requires that electricity to be distributed? What happens if the electrical grid goes down tomorrow across the United States? Let's say 50% of it. And let's say you live in a place where your electricity stays on. How long do you think it's going to stay on if the other 50% doesn't come back soon? How, how, how well stocked do you think your store will be three weeks later if 50% of the country is still without power? Most people never stop and think about how these things are interdependent. Think about the bureaucratic system. What if people do get tired of our government and start yanking those clowns out of their chairs? Sounds like a good idea. What if the government gets shut down by the people? What will that do to the economy? You know about 50% of the people in our country today either work for or are paid by the government in one way, form, or another. Half the country is dependent on the bureaucracy to pay them. This is a non-military portion of our economy that I'm talking about. So military retirement, we're going to call that non-military because the guy's not active duty at this point. It's not about the military mission. We're going to get there in just a second. So if we have a disruption in the bureaucracy, half the people in America have a portion or all of their money cut off. That's everybody on Social Security. That's everybody on welfare. What happens when welfare recipients get IOUs? That might happen in California in the next year or two. The state pays the welfare. What happens if that happens everywhere? How many gang members are going to be upset because their mother didn't get their welfare? What will that make our streets look like? Even if it's isolated in one city or another, what will it do to the confidence in the economy throughout the rest of the nation? See, there's so many things that we're dependent on. What about that military-industrial complex? Uh, Most people, including me, when you actually look at it rationally, realize that the United States spends too much money on defense. And I know that will bother some people because you're pro-military, and so am I. I'm pro-military. Very pro-military. Prior service soldier. United States Army Airborne. Military-industrial complex has nothing to do with the individual soldier in, in reality. The United States spends about $700 billion a year on the military-industrial complex. $700 billion. Remember how upset we got over the Ask Clown $700 billion stimulus package? We spend it every year just on our military. Now, you might think, well, we need that. We need to defend ourselves. We need to defend ourselves. We have a strong military. That's, that's fine with me. And the last place we need to be cutting is the boots on the ground, the individual soldier. But let me put this in perspective. If you take every other nation in the world, the Chinese, the British, the Russians, the Indians, the Pakistanis, all of South America, all of Europe, all of Asia, every other nation on the planet, and you take all of their military spending and you combine it, we outspend the rest of the world on the military. But there's a two-edged sword here. Let's say we start to cut that expenditure. (laughs) And we say now we're going to put that money back into other things our country can use. How many people are employed by that $700 billion? How many people work for companies like Boeing and Lockheed, General Dynamics, etc.? They don't even realize that they're working for the military-industrial complex. How many of those people lose their jobs? Once they lose their jobs and they stop spending, we've already seen what happens when 9 million people lose their jobs. What happens when 19 million people lose jobs? What spiral does that cause? See, I know I'm starting to make you feel exposed today, but I'm trying to just get you to see the way these things are interdependent. Because what happens is we disrupt any one of these systems sufficiently. It starts a domino effect. And that domino effect starts to disrupt the other ones. 
If I disrupt the economic system sufficiently, in one shape, form, or another, it will have a derogatory effect on the transportation and distribution systems, which will affect the agricultural systems, which sooner or later must affect the energy systems. As the energy systems are affected, the technology systems themselves will begin to fail. You don't think that can happen. California's already had rolling brownouts. So has Texas. We've had areas of our state. We're the energy capital of the United States, southern Alaska. And we've had areas in our states that have pushed the electrical uh, consumption to the edge. There's no more power available. It's a fragile thing. And if that starts to fail, then the social order starts to fail. That's the last system I want to talk about today. I want you to understand something. There's a system out there that nobody really fully understands except the sociologists. And that's the social order system. And that social order system is what keeps us from killing each other. It's not just the law. There are not enough police officers in the country to protect one city if every single person that lives in the inner city that decides they're tired of living that inner city, in that inner city and wants out, doesn't want to do it by work and ethics, but they want to do it by taking it and storming the suburbs. It's not enough. Can't be done. Can't be held back. L.A. riots prove that to us. That social order is held together by all of these systems. Most people, even if they're miserable in their station in life, they are somewhat comfortable in their station in life. A welfare recipient in the United States lives better than a middle-income person in a lot of the rest of the countries of the world. They have their government housing projects with free cable TV. You know, they squeeze out enough babies and they have a three or four bedroom apartment that they barely pay anything for. They have WIC, they have food stamps. What happens if all that gravy train gets cut off? Do you think the people that have been on that gravy train for 50 years or more now are just going to go okay? No problem? Let's look at it. Let's not blame somebody because they're at the bottom either. Let's look at the danger of most of us, the middle American. The social order starts to break down. It's Joe Average, the accountant, the programmer, the web designer, the guy that changes tires, the manager of a Walmart or a restaurant, works hard, makes fifty, sixty to $100,000 a year. Maybe his spouse does the same. Live in a nice house, $200,000 place in the middle of middle America. Kids are in activity, soccer, has an SUV and a car, lives a great life. Maybe burdened by debt, maybe miserable overall, but overall pretty good life. Something that our grandparents would have considered a very wealthy, affluent man, the way this average American lives today. The social order starts to break down. Do you think he's just going to give it up? Do you think he's letting his kids go without food? Do you not think he'll do whatever it takes to put food in the mouths of his children to keep the property he's worked so hard for? Do you think he'll just move out if moving out means moving out into chaos? Or do you think he'll fortify his position and say, oh, hell no. You're going to move somebody else out. I'm not going anywhere. Do you think he'll stop complying with the social order? Do you think he'll become willing to take from somebody else the wealthy? You think the wealthy will be content to lose half or more of what they have to have it redistributed? Some of them families that have worked for generations to acquire what they have. See, most people don't understand wealthy people. They think that they're just, you know, they're just given whatever they have. I'm not talking about the elite now, folks. I'm not talking about the people that, you know, are part of the Bilderbergers and the conspiracy hat people say they rule the whole world. I'm talking about America's everyday wealthy. The guy that's been profiled in the book, The Millionaire Next Door. That guy. The guy that lives a lot like that middle American, but he just has a hell of a lot more. And maybe he's not as burdened by debt. Think he's going to give up and quit if the social order begins to break down? And once the social order begins to break down anywhere, the reason that you see law enforcement move so swiftly in a martial law mode to quash it is it is like a tempest. And it expands exponentially. As it moves out from its origin, it progresses faster as it goes for, as it goes forward. And that turmoil in Chicago can reach Texas before you know it, if it's allowed to happen. 
That social order system is the thing that makes society possible. Law enforcement helps keep it in place, but mostly it's kept in place by people's willingness to accept it. All I'm saying is that the day times get tough enough to disrupt that willing acceptance of the social order, we're in trouble. We're in trouble in Chicago where we have uh, street gangs that number 25,000 people with a command structure and a code of ethics and a brotherhood and a loyalty that are armed. We're in real trouble with that alone. And there's people like that and gangs like that, and it doesn't have anything to do with race. You've got Aryan, the Aryan Brotherhood here in, in Texas. you got MS-13, the old Crips and the Bloods. There's, if you, you want a real understanding of the danger this country's in with a social order breakdown, start watching a show that's on, I think it's on the History Channel, it's called Gangland, where they profile all these different gangs. The Latin Kings... All of them, motorcycle gangs, you know, and in all of our literature, in all of our literature, you know, fiction literature, fan fiction, it's always the biker gang that's the danger. You guys might want to learn about people like the Latin Kings and what kind of structure those guys have in place in the city of Chicago. How dangerous that group could be. And they're not riding around on motorcycles. And that really comes down to the most important system that's out there that nobody can really influence. It can only be damaged by actions that people take when they violate it. And that's a system of trust. See, what makes that social order happen is a reasonable expectation of trust. There's a trust that the person in the inner city, despite how angry they are about being there, has that... Man, if I really, really want out of this place, I can leave. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I could, and people do do it. There's a trust that at least what I have is not going to be taken from me. If it is, it's going to be taken by a, you know, a criminal that lives here too. They're not going to come take it from me. You know, the, the, the guy that lives across the, you know, across town in a nicer place, he's not going to come take it. I might blame him for being there, but at least I don't think he's going to take what I have. And the guy that lives across town in that nicer area, he feels the same way. He might look at, because of class warfare and the way we've been misled and lied to, he thinks, hey, man, if it wasn't for those poor people over there that won't get off their ass and get a job, I'd have more because they wouldn't have to tax me so hard. He doesn't realize a tiny portion of his tax is going to those people. Most of it's going into the coffers of the elite. And they scare him with that guy on the other side. But he at least trusts that that guy's not going to come take it. And if they do, it's not going to be all of them. It's going to be one or two of them that are criminals. And that's why we have police officers. And that's why we pay taxes, too. And the rich guy, he assumes that 20 of his workers won't show up at his place tomorrow. The people that he's been feeding for 20 years and taking care of for 20 years and providing a livelihood for 20 years, that he won't show up at work with all of them there waiting for him. And they're going to thump him on the head and make him give him account numbers and withdraw his money from his bank. Those are trusts. And those are just random examples of things that could happen and have happened. In other countries, believe it or not, that's happened. Workers got laid off. They didn't strike. They went in and demanded that the owner pay them out of his own pocket. One way or another, we're going to get paid. Where union and rights mentality to a job have run amok. Well, there's a trust in society that that's not going to happen, and that where it does happen, it's an acute thing, not a systemic thing, and that law enforcement, by and large, will handle it. Well, the day we lose that trust, the social system collapses, the economic system collapses, the technology system collapses, the distribution system collapses, the healthcare system collapses... The energy system collapses. The social order system is gone when we have chaos. Now, there will be a point where it's put back together, but the interim is dangerous and scary. The foil hat people will tell you, well, it's going to happen because it's being orchestrated. And I'll tell you this. I don't care if it's by orchestration or incompetence. I can see the possibility of it occurring. 
Not the probability, but the possibility. I have no idea that it, if it would really ever get that bad. But when you look at all the systems out there, and you realize if I squeeze one of them off, the catalyst that it creates. See, we weren't always this way. 200 years ago, 200 years ago, we might have a problem, but it would be isolated. There wasn't so much interdependence. Turn off the power, nobody, they didn't invent a light bulb yet. Thomas Edison was in diapers. There was no electrical distribution system to worry about. There was no communication system. There was no telegraph. People communicated with letters that traveled on things like horsebacks. So, because we weren't dependent, people had a skill set and a knowledge base that was useful. And this is what I want to end with today. And I want you to start thinking about this. And this is why we need to learn skills differently than we do today. Think back when you were in school and you started to learn math. Now, odds are that anybody listening to the show is old enough, uh, or young enough, let's say, that whenever you were in grade school, they had a thing called a calculator. You probably weren't allowed to use one. But they, it was there. It was available. And you, when you learned about a calculator, you're probably like, why do I got to learn what 9 plus 7 is? Why do I got to memorize my addition and my subtraction and my multiplication and division? You know, why do I have to learn this? Why can't I just plug it into a calculator and it gives me the answer? And, of course, now you're older and you're wise enough to know that the answer they gave you was true. You need to know how to do it without a calculator because there won't always be one there. And you won't understand and you won't be able to go to the next level of mathematics and interpretation. You won't be able to function in our society. And as, as you evolved, maybe you started to, you, know, you went into the thing that every grade school kid hates, long division. And now you really want to know why you can't use a calculator. And why is point whatever not suitable? Why do I have to put remainder? Because, again, you have to learn the mechanics of how this works. And then we'll teach you to use a calculator. So the calculator becomes a tool to take you forward, not something that you're dependent upon. Right? Think about it another way. If you're a shooter and you were taught to shoot a rifle as you were a child, odds are the first rifle you ever shot had iron sights on it. And Dad's deer rifle had a scope on it. Now I want to scope, Dad. You must learn to shoot, son, with iron sights first. So you won't be dependent upon the scope. You'll always have a sighting mechanism. It won't always be a scope. A scope can fog. It can be cracked. It can go bad. And there's certain things that iron sights are better for. And if you learn to shoot with sights well, you'll be able to shoot even better with a scope. And then it will be something that you will use to go forward with rather than something that you're dependent upon. Two totally different worlds. The exact same system. We learn how to do without first. And then we learn how to use the technology to take it forward. We have forgotten that wisdom in America. And what we teach people now is how to rely upon the technology with no understanding of what to do if the technology's not there. We're putting the scope rifle in the hands of the five-year-old as the first way to learn to shoot instead of the Daisy Red Rider BB gun with iron sights. Sounds dangerous, doesn't doesn't it? It is. And even if he doesn't shoot anybody or hurt himself, he's not going to be as proficient as he could be. And if you ever take the scope rifle away from him, he's done can't function. We're putting the hand, the calculator into the hand of the second grader instead of making them learn multiplication, addition, subtraction, division tables. And we're not teaching them long division. We're just giving them a calculator and letting them use a decimal point. So if they get into a point where they don't have a calculator, and this is actually really happening, you know, next time you go to a, a store, wait till the guy rings up the, the thing for change when you're standing there holding a 20, and it's $19.84, and after he, he, he sees the 20 and he pushes it, and, and he thinks he's going to give you 16 cents, hand him four pennies with that $20 bill and look him in the eye and see what happens. And then when you're laughing at that and you think, oh God, what's wrong with these people? Ask yourself, how would you cook your food? And how would most Americans cook their food if you went home at night and you went to turn the lights on and they weren't there? And there was no propane in the gas grill. Ask yourself, how would you get a message to someone that lives 
10 miles away, let alone 1,000 miles away, if the phone and the email didn't work? Would we even have any way to do it initially? Ask yourself, how would you go wherever you needed to go to get those edible plants that you know about if your car didn't run? Ask yourself, would you know how to do something simple that anybody can learn in 15 minutes, like make a piece of rope out of natural fiber? Start asking yourself, how many things were common knowledge 200 years ago that had been handed down for generation upon generation upon generation upon generation? That for 10,000 years, any random human being in most societies would have been able to accomplish? that most people have no idea are even possible anymore. Think about shows like, what was that show uh, we watched for a while with uh, The Colony? And all the things that they did, how many of them were really primitive skills? Mostly what they did was harvest things around them to replace the technology that was lacking. They didn't really figure out how to exist without the technology. They figured out how to replace it. Would you know how to replace technology, or would you know how to exist without it? Now, a lot of you listening to this show could exist without it, but I'm asking you how many of your fellow Americans around you could exist without it, and what kind of danger does that create if they're not there? And let me ask you, just put this in a completely different context. How big a loss is it for us to allow the wisdom of 10,000 years of human existence to vanish because now we have a calculator with which to do our long division? Or should we still be learning that long division? I think we should still be learning. And I think that's the hope, that we continue to learn how to do without the things that we have, even if we continue to use them. There's no reason to not use a calculator. None at all. Except you should learn how to do basic math without it. There's no reason not to put a scope on your rifle, but you better damn well learn how to shoot without it. That's all I'm saying. So over the weekend, that's my challenge for you today. Pick a couple skills that have been lost in our society and learn how to do them, at least learn about them and get on a path to doing them. So you can continue to do the things that are necessary for yourself and for others if we end up in a bad situation. And if anybody asks you the question again, what could go wrong, hopefully you're more equipped to give them the answer. Don't give them the long dissertation I did today. Just start asking them about the systems. And ask, well, what could disrupt this system? And if that system was disrupted, what would happen to this system? Now that you know about some of them, you should be able to lead anybody down that road that sincerely asks the question. And if the question is not sincere, don't bother. Some people are just not ready for this stuff yet. And that's okay. But I know you are. So take this stuff to heart. Keep working. Keep building. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life when times get tough or even if they don't. You can scream and you can holler. It really doesn't matter because it all gets spent.